Let me just explain this, even though the topic is not the structure of the prayer on Rosh Hashanah. I want to point out something. And that is, the service of Rosh Hashanah, the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah, it's the main service of Rosh Hashanah. It's the service in which we are also sounding the shofar in conjunction with the blessings. So the service has three parts, three, three blessings. One is called Malchuyot, kingship. <coughs> then there is Zichronot, or remembrances. And then Shofarot. Shofar, which means revelation. Those are the themes of Rosh Hashanah. Each one has a blessing. Each one has the shofar sounded together with it. That's the key to the service of Rosh Hashanah. If someone asks you, what is Rosh Hashanah about, okay? This is a general failure of our educational system. When the kids go to school, they study Rosh Hashanah, they study about maybe dipping an apple in honey or something like that. Or, you know. But what Rosh Hashanah is actually about, what, what, it, what it boils down to, the, the core of Rosh Hashanah is two things. Number one, shofar, obviously. And then secondly, the prayers surrounding shofar of God's kingship, remembrances, and, and revelation. Now, the, the way it works is, is kingship, remembrances, and revelation. So the central, the middle one is, is remembrances. Zichronot, which means, if you look at the matzah, the basic theme of remembrances, or sorry, the initial theme, is that of judgment. The day of Rosh Hashanah as a day of judgment is the idea embedded, actually it's pretty explicit, in the idea that God remembers. Then memory takes on a different meaning. But in this blessing of judgment, remembrance, actually in all three of the blessings, there's a body of statements with a citation of verses, and then there's a last The request in section is to remember us for good. And in that section, one thing. That's how it actually ends. It ends with, God, We ask God to remember the binding of Isaac. That's the culmination of the section we call Zichronot. And by the way, in order to underscore the, cent the centrality of Zichronot on Rosh Hashanah, one simple point should be remembered, and that is that in the service of Rosh Hashanah, in the liturgy of Rosh Hashanah, which is the Shemon Esrei, what do we call Rosh Hashanah in our service? It's called what? Yom HaZikaron, the Day of Remembrance. Speaking of the Day of Remembrance, by the way, at the end of this class, we're going to recite a, a, a psalm. And it was six years ago, and I was teaching Parshat. I remember on this day, Tuesday, and exactly where I was six years ago, in the Jewish Center on the 10th floor. Up upstairs, I got a note that the towers had fallen. I remember that. Let me stop the class and said to you, Lim. So I remember like it's yesterday. There's some, sure, we all do. So at the end of the class, I think it would be appropriate to recite a psalm. Um, Anyway, the day is called Yom HaZikaron, the day of memory, the day of remembrance. That's the name of the day. The blessing, the middle blessing is Baruch Hashem Zocher Abrit, remembers the covenant. And the one thing we are recalling on Rosh Hashanah, in that last section, we ask God to remember us in a positive way, we are recalling the binding of Isaac. So I would say that, whereas the Torah reading of Rosh Hashanah, the hero or heroine or whatever would be Sarah. 
it's actually very interesting that the, the, the readings of Rosh Hashanah on the first day, the hero of or heroine of the reading is Vashem Pakadet Sarah, and the Haftor is Vachana. And the second day, where we continue with the binding of Isaac, the Haftorah of the second day, which is very powerful, is actually Rachel. Rachel Mavakar Baneha, that's the Haftorah. Rachel cries for her children. It's very curious that of the four readings on Rosh Hashanah, three refer to women. Sarah, Chana, and, and, uh, and uh, Rachel. It's probably something to that. But it's, so they're the heroes of the reading, but it's the hero of the davening. It's Abraham. That's on Rosh Hashanah. And Yom Kippur is different. Yom Kippur, there's a different hero. Who was the hero of Yom Kippur? Now, the Kohen Gadol is, in fact, Kohen Gadol is significant. There is that service of the high priest, and the high priest is a major player. But I would say, if you pick out actually the main point of the service of Rav Yom Kippur, it's the story, it's basically Moses. It's Moses after the golden calf. The golden calf story lies behind Yom Kippur. That, that's the key story of Yom Kippur. In our entire penitential prayers, we call Slichot, which were written basically for Yom Kippur, though there's a custom to say that before Yom Kippur, we start to say, Naira, Ashkenazim, Svarim, Stars, Elul, it doesn't matter. And the Slichot are basically the service for Yom Kippur. The hero of the Slichot is Moses. In fact, we say every, we always introduce the Slichot, which is God's attributes of mercy, by saying, You revealed these to, these, to, the, to, the, to the humble one, being Moses. You taught Moses the attributes of mercy, Hashem, Hashem, Kerach, and Bechanan. That's different. But Rosh Hashanah, the hero, is this Abraham. And the story that we are recalling is the binding of Isaac, and we are recalling it actually at the end of a section that we call Zichronot, Remembrances. So I wanted to speak this morning about the story of the binding of Isaac from two perspectives. One is simply to understand it in its context as we read it, the context being the book of Genesis. And the second... Um, thing is to uh, understand it within the context of the service of Rosh Hashanah. The binding of Isaac is the last thing we are recalling in the context of the blessing we call zichronot or, or memory or remembrance. How, what is this, how does that sort of fit in with the larger theme of zichronot? Okay, so first of all, let me start with the first things first, and that is a brief analysis of the binding of Isaac within its within the context of the book of Genesis. So, many years ago, remember there was some, must have been, there was some kind of a forum at the 92nd Street Y about the ending of Isaac. So they chose three rabbis to speak, one from each of the major denominations, a reform uh, orthodox conservative, and they, they left out the Reconstructionists for some reason, whatever. point is that and each one spoke about the binding of Isaac. The problem was that each one spoke about the binding of Isaac as best. I wasn't there. I was simply got a report. I was curious. But they spoke about it from the standpoint of the analysis of chapter 22 of Genesis. The problem with that analysis is that it doesn't take into account the fact that chapter 22 of Genesis it's the end of the story. It's like the last chapter of a book. It's like analyzing the last chapter of, I know, Crime and Punishment. If you haven't read the book, you've read only the last chapter. Obviously, we all understand it doesn't make too much sense. That was the fair, that was the point of departure for this so-called analysis. 
So it turned out to be not an analysis of chapter 22, but rather a statement of faith or whatever it was, or a discussion, or maybe a very valid one actually, but little to do with chapter 22. So the analysis this morning that I will present, a brief one, will take, will, the starting point is that chapter 22 of Genesis, from a certain standpoint, is the end of the story. I'm going to just add and, and say that actually, this is a very important literary question when we study anything, let's say the Bible. Um, we have a story. The first question always is, where does it begin and where does it end? And you might say that's sort of a silly question. It's obvious where it begins and ends. Not so. It's very unobvious usually where it begins. For example, the story of Abraham. Where does the story of Abraham begin and where does it end? One could say, well, it begins when we first encounter Abraham, and it ends when he dies. That's a completely valid and, and true the way to understand it. We introduce we are introduced to him in chapter 11, towards the end of chapter 11, and he dies in chapter 25. His death is recorded in chapter 25. Chronologically, he seems to die much later, but, he, but his death is recorded in 25. Having said all that, there is another way to look at the beginning and the ending of the Abraham story, and that is one could see the beginning of the Abraham story, not when, not when the data of his birth and family are given, but rather when the narrative begins, the story begins as it were, which is perhaps the beginning of chapter 12, when God speaks to Abraham for the first time and says to Abraham in chapter 12, get up and go. And what's interesting is, many have noticed this and in one form or another, it's about many, that chapter 22 and chapter 12 are actually parallel chapters. That is to say, they contain with them similar, similar motifs, similar language. And chapter 22, which is the binding of Isaac, which also begins with God speaking to Abraham. It's actually the last time God speaks to Abraham. The chapter 12, the Lechacha of chapter 12, is the first time God speaks to Abraham. And the Lechacha of chapter 22 was the last time God speaks to Abraham. There is a blessing to Abraham in chapter 12 in the beginning. There's a blessing to Abraham in chapter 22 at the end. There's a sacrifice mentioned in each chapter. There's family issues in each chapter. There's leaving where you are in each chapter, etc., etc., etc. They're clearly parallel chapters. One is justified in saying that the Abraham narrative actually has two beginnings and two endings. There is a sort of chronological beginning ending when he's born and when he dies. Then there's a kind of internal beginning and ending to the Abraham story, which is in terms of his communication with God when he first leaves and when he last leaves. Chapters 12 and 22. Now, this is not the place I have in other occasions spoken at great length about the significance of the, of the story having two endings. Because there was another, I, I, I have related this to another great narrative which also in my view has two beginnings and two endings. The story of David and David's kingship have demonstrated the, actually that the author of Samuel uses a story to tell the story of David. In any event, that's not our place here. But my point is that certainly from a certain perspective, the Abraham, the binding of Isaac is the end of the Abraham story. I would say that to formulate it this way, there are two endings to the Abraham story. I was calling the kind of theoretical or abstract ending. When Abraham secures the eternal blessing, which is the story of the binding of Isaac. And then the next chapters, 23, 24, maybe 25, are the, the reality of how does it play out. 
what does Abraham do, practically speaking, to secure the blessing? Actually, the two things he does. He buries Sarah. He secures for Sarah a place. And then he manages to secure a wife for Isaac to replace Sarah, namely Rebecca. And that's done in a very practical way. He, he spends a lot of money, negotiates and all this. Those are the two endings. Now, the next question you may ask is, okay, let's assume we accept this. What then is the significance of the fact that the binding of Isaac is, is in fact the culminating story with precise parallels to chapter 12? And here I would suggest the following. If it's the culminating story of, of the Abraham narrative, then presumably, if it's a good piece of work, um, it refers back to the entire narrative. Now, there's one question we can ask ourselves. is chapter 22 begins with God speaking to Abraham, and the Torah uses the term in chapter 22, verse 1. Everybody should have a chumash. I mean, you need a Bible, yeah. Says how sought Abraham that God tested Abraham. The first question is, why is there a need for a test altogether? Why does God test Abraham? And the second question is, why this particular test? That's the question. I don't think we should content ourselves with saying, well, it's a very difficult thing to do, and that's why it's really difficult. But that per se, I think, is insufficient as to why this in particular is the test. Take your son, your only son, the one you love, and bring him as a sacrifice on one of the mountains that I will tell you. So in order to answer this question, why this particular test, and the prior question, why a test altogether, what's the most logical way to proceed over here is to say, well, if it's a test, and it's the last chapter, then presumably it speaks to the core issue of the Abraham story. Every story has its issue. The Torah does not make any attempt to give us a full reading of Abraham's life, or of any character, frankly. In fact, quite the opposite is true. It's very sparse in detail. It leaves what one might say in modern parlance are many gaps. Um, one of the questions that in the last 20, 30 years that's been debated around, and the person who actually uses terminology was a professor named Mayor Sternberg in Israel, um, is what about these gaps? Are these gaps, in, does the Torah want us to actually fill the gaps in? as, for example, the Midrash often does, or is the whole point quite the opposite, that the gaps are, 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 are to be left empty. That doesn't want to, to fill them in. It wants to leave these spaces for a whole variety of reasons. One of them is that it lends itself to kind of ambiguity, and that the Torah actually often, I think Sternberg over, overplays his hand, but in any event, um, wants us to read texts often in two different ways, without being able to determine which of the two ways. I will say that in my own teaching, I came up with precisely the same idea many, about 30 years ago myself, purposeful ambiguity. And that point of difference, I think, is largely the way one reads different texts. In other words, how good, how good readers we are. That's, that's really the, but it's not really a, we both agree, and I think it's clear, that there are many texts which lend themselves to, to, to double readings. Not because we can't figure it out, because the text doesn't want us to know. In any event, assuming that we are dealing here with the test being related to Abraham's issue, core issue, the question, of course, is what is the core issue of the Abraham story? And I think when one reads the story, 
prior to the binding of Isaac, beginning with chapter 12, the answer becomes clear very quickly. Actually, in the first few words, Vayomer Hashem al-Avram, in Brackford, and God said to Avram, of course, you know that the names in the Torah are often not names, but rather descriptions. The man's name is Avram. Where did it become Avraham? Avram, Avram is a father. Ram is exalted. God said to exalted father, that's his name. The only thing is, at the end of chapter 11, we're giving one small piece of information. He's married to a woman named Sarah. Sarah has no children. Abraham doesn't seem to have any other wife. So Abraham has no children. So it's a very peculiar name for a 75-year-old man to whom God speaks in chapter 12. God speaks to exalted father, but exalted father is not a father at all. And there, therein lies the key to the Abraham story. It's also why the Torah begins the story of Abraham when he's 75, not when he's first born. He's already at a point where you expect he would have managed to find some kind of successor, but he's a man with no successor. So the first person in the story, actually, the potential successor for Abraham in chapter 12 is not his biological son, but his son of a sort, which is his nephew. It's his deceased brother's son, Haran, who dies at the end of chapter 11, as son named Lot. Lot accompanies Abraham. That doesn't work out well as far as succession. Lot and Abraham part ways in chapter 13. Lot goes his way, Abraham goes his way, and Abraham still does, has no successor. In chapter 15, after the battle of Abraham against these four kings, God says to Abraham, uh, don't worry, I'm going to give you a big reward. Abraham says, what could you give me? No one succeed me. The master in my house is none other than Eliezer of, of, uh, of, of, of Damascus. Ben Meshach, Beiti, Damesach, Eliezer. At which point God says, don't worry, your son will inherit you. And then the covenant is set up in chapter 15. In chapter 16, we have the birth of Abraham's first son, Ishmael. And that's the story of Hagar and Ishmael. The precursor, chapter 16, is the precursor to chapter 21, which is episode number two of Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael. In general, it's good to know that the Abraham stories are all doubled. Each of the stories appears twice. Two, two Hagars, two Lot, two Lechuchas, etc., two Abimelechs. They're all doubled stories. So Abraham names his son Yishmael, which means God will hear. God is hearing me. And presumably, for Abraham, that means God heard what I said. What will you give me, God? I need someone to succeed me. To which God says to Abraham, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Your son will inherit you. And then Ishmael is born. So from Abraham's thinking, Ishmael is his son. In chapter 17, however, that's chapter 16. and 17, God appears to Abraham in the context of this covenant, part two of the covenant, which is, revolves around circumcision, eternal blessing, etc., the land, and God says to Abraham in chapter 17 that you're not Avram, you're Avraham. Your wife Sarai is not Sarai, but Sarah. And she will bear you a son. And I will establish my covenant with him. Shmuel is okay, you know. But, but you'll you name him Isaac, Yitzchak. When Abraham hears this, he falls down, he laughs. He says, is this possible? I'm 100 years old. My wife's 90 years old. No, no. It's going to be Sarah. The first words out of Abraham's mouth when God informs him in chapter 17 that Sarah will bear a, a, a child, a covenantal child, Abraham has only four words for God, which are, 
Lu Yishmael Yichyelufanecha. Would that Yishmael live before you? That's what he says. That's very important. So the commentaries are divided. And why is he saying this? Some want to make the argument that he's concerned that if Isaac is to be chosen, was to be with, with, with my son Yishmael. Does that mean he's discarded? In my, in my view, that's not the better interpretation. But the better interpretation is, reflects something else, which is, he has little, I mean, it's very nice for Sarah to have a child, it's lovely, but the point is, what about Yishmael? He's my son. What does that mean? He's going to be discarded? That's what Abraham says. And God says, well, he's going to get a blessing, but Isaac is covenantal. The question is, does Abraham get that or not? Does he understand that? He hears the words. But as we all know, you can hear something a hundred times. It happens all the time, by the way. Sometimes someone says something. It's my, I can say from my, my own teaching. I've said the same thing for 30 years. And sometimes someone says, wow, that class last week was great. It's such a novel thought. So what, I've been saying the same thing for 30 years, you know? But the answer is, but the first 200 times, she never heard what I was saying. We're, we're, we're all that way. Something happens. It's not about the person. It's, it's about where we are. It's about putting ourselves in a place where we could actually hear. That, this is the point. And Abraham, I believe, is not in a place where he can hear. He hears what God is saying. He doesn't, doesn't really hear it. And to me, this is the key to the whole Abraham story. And it's to be combined with something else which is very important. And actually remarkable in the, in the story. Amazing. And that is that there's something else that appears twice in the Abraham story. And that is, in two on two different occasions, Abraham says about Sarah, his wife, that she is his... Uh, his assistant. He says this in chapter 12, the very first story. They go down to Egypt. There's a famine in the land. They go to Egypt. And Abraham says to his wife, Sarah, do me a favor. This is very beautiful. When you go down to Egypt, the Egyptians see you. They will kill me. And they will take you. So please say you're my sister. In order that it go well for me and that I live. That's the story. I can't get to all the details and the difficulties of that and the problems. He goes down to a place he knows it's dangerous and he knows he's putting her in a terrible situation and he doesn't want to be himself killed so he asks her to lie and in order that it go well for me, he says, and that I live. That's what happens. In fact, it goes very well for him. He gets a lot of gifts, he gets a lot of money, he gets a lot of possessions, he gets slaves, he gets male slaves, he gets female slaves. But Sarah is taken by Pharaoh. God then intervenes and punishes Pharaoh, and at some point in time, it's not clear when, Pharaoh figures out that Abraham's, Sarah is not his sister, but his wife, returns Sarah to Abraham, throws him out, and they leave the land. Kind of a precursor to the exodus later on. How long Sarah was taken by Pharaoh, who knows? It appears to be quite a while, but it's not clear. That's story number one, that's chapter 12. What's rather remarkable is when you turn the pages of the Torah and you come to chapter 20. This is quite amazing. Chapter 20 starts off by telling us that Abraham traveled to the land of the south in a place called Gerar. Verse number two, and Abraham said either to his sister or of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. At which point Abimelech, king of the Philistines, grabs her. He takes Sarah. God then intervenes right away and says, don't go, stay away from her. She's a married woman. Don't, don't get involved. 
Avinoch protests. I didn't know, he says. He would kill even a righteous person like me. What, what, what? He said, sister. She says, brother. My hands are clean. My heart is pure. So God says, I know how pure you are. That's why I'm telling you. I don't, if you don't return her, I'm going to kill you. So Avimelech calls Abraham and says, what is this? How could you lie to me like this in danger? So Abraham has three different answers. All problematic. I was afraid, he says, you might kill me. And she is my sister. She's my half-sister. And we do this every place we go. Those are his three answers. They're all dubious answers for different reasons I can't get into now. But at the end of this little speech, Abraham... Uh, Avimelech turns to Sarah and says to him, one of the more remarkable verses of Genesis, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It will be a cover-up of the eyes and a rebuke to all who say anything. So he says to Sarah, I have given your brother, of course, brother, God is screaming, wife, God intervenes, right? You better return this woman. She's a married woman. She's married to Abraham. And Abraham, he turns to Abraham and says, hey, what is this? What are you doing to me? How could you lie and say she's my sister? What's Abraham's answer? She really is my sister. I didn't lie to you. She's also my wife, he says. She's my sister. So, so Avinoch turns to Abraham and says, there's some money. I gave your brother some money, he says. So why don't you stay with me? And Abraham stays. That's chapter 20. And what's the point? To talk about this for a long time. The point is very simple. That Abraham, this is the point of chapter 20. When he says, how could you lie and say she's your wife? And Abraham says, I didn't lie to you. She actually is my sister, and who, who I took as a wife. The only really way to understand makes any sense is, I didn't lie because our relationship is actually not husband and wife. Our true relationship is brother and sister. Yeah, you know, she's my wife. We check into a hotel, one room instead of two. You know what I mean? And that kind of stuff, you know? And we all kinds of perks, but basically, she's my sister. And the point is... What is the difference between sister and wife? And it's very simple. You can love your sister, but in this book, she doesn't share your destiny. He sees this Sarah as in no way connected to his destiny. In fact, in thinking, reflecting on Abraham, when he first turned to God, and he said, God says, don't worry, it's going to be okay, I'll give you a big reward. What does Abraham say to God in chapter 15? Hashem <laughs> Oh, Lord, what would you give me when I, when, when I go without children? The head of my household, right? Right? So, one might say, it's all about me. There's not a one single word about Sarah. Contrast it, for example, to his son Isaac. And Isaac entreated God for Rebecca's sake, for she had no children. He also has no children. But he's praying for her. When it comes to Abraham... It's always praying for himself. It's very simple. Avimelech, how could you lie to me? To which the answer is, no, I didn't, I didn't lie to you. She's my sister. And she's also a wife. She's my sister. That's very important. And that is tied in with the basic point of the Abraham narrative, which is that in Abraham's head, in his head, there's a, there's, there's, there's his son, actually, is Ishmael. Isaac, the son of his sister, it's lovely, it's great, he loves him and all that. But the fact of the matter is, if you stop him on the street, and you, Abraham, quick, what's the name of your son? Yishmael. And I will demonstrate that in a very interesting way right now. And that is, in the Torah reading of the first day of Rosh Hashanah, it says the following. After Isaac is born, it says that Sarah sees the son of the slave woman mocking Yishmael. Right. Turns to Abraham in chapter 21, 
and says, throw out the slave woman, Hagar, together with her son. For the son of the slave woman, Ben-Hamah, shall not inherit with my son, with Isaac. Right? And what is the next verse of the Torah in chapter 21? To underline this verse. The verse is, Vayera hadavar mi'od b'yenei Abraham al-adot The thing was, here he says distressed. The matter was ra. The matter was evil in Abraham's eyes on account of his son. Now we think about the verse is very curious actually. Rashi Ray picked up on it, though Rashi has a different spin. Rashi is very anti-Ishmael actually over here. But the fact of the matter is, the Torah could easily have said, and the matter distressed Abraham greatly on account of Ishmael. Don't say that. It's just on account of his son, which leads Rashi in the Midrash to some fanciful interpretations about which son he's distressed about. They see the, because the word Beno is truly ambiguous. He has two sons. But here's the point we have to make. Although the word Beno is ambiguous, the context here disambiguates. It is obvious from the next verse. And God said to Abraham, There's no room for ambiguity. Let the thing not be evil in your eyes about the boy and his, and his mother, your slave. Don't, don't worry about it. Listen to what Sarah tells you. The son of, and the son of the slave I will also bless. He's your son. So the context makes it obviously clear, without question, that Beno is Yishmael. So here, we can, here we can formulate the following proposition. When the Torah uses an ambiguous word, but the text, or the context, disambiguates, like here. That means only one thing. The Torah is saying something else. That Beno is actually Yishmael. This is the point. The context is clear. It's not ambiguous. Hey, Avram, quick, who's your son? Tell me right now. Yishmael is my son. That's what he would say. His son is Yishmael. What about the other one? Oh, my, uh, my, uh, my, uh, my uh, sister's boy? Oh, the sister? Yes, he's also, he's, I love him too. That's Abraham. The first words out of his mouth. She explains something else, by the way. It explains, this is the first day Torah reading. It explains why, in fact, from a certain perspective, Yishmael has to be thrown out. I mean, there are all kinds of fanciful interpretations about does he do the right thing, does he do the wrong thing. You can debate it for as long as you want. To me, the text is about as clear as any text can be, and that is he does the right thing because actually he doesn't want to throw Yishmael out. It's God that tells him to throw Yishmael out. And the point is the following. Here we have to make a very important distinction one of my friends what's called fault and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and responsibility. By that, I mean, it's very sad, actually, tragic, perhaps, that Yishmael has to be thrown out. And in fact, if we ask the question, whose fault is it? I would say that the, the Yishmael situation that has emerged in the family, I think I would blame Sarah. After all, she, she tortures Hagar in the beginning. The main culprit in the whole story is, of course, Abraham himself, whose mistreatment of Sarah, and he doesn't actually care about Hagar either. Do whatever you want. Ishmael is also mitzachek, so he's also guilty. He taunts. But the fact, it's, it's, a, it's a, I would say, there's plenty of blame to be placed every place about how do we get into the situation where Ishmael has to be thrown out. Whose fault is it, fine? But that's not, the point is, but de facto, this is the situation. And the question is, actually, not a study of history. How do we arrive at this point in time? 
But unfortunately, the situation is that at this point in time, what do you do? Sometimes there's a confusion in life and in politics often between how do we get here and then what, what do we do now to deal with it? Uh, and those are two different things. It's important to deal with the, the reality that exists today. What do you do? That's the question. Not whose fault is it in getting there. So, you have it in the Chumash later on, by the way, when Jacob, uh, Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to get food. And they come back missing one son and with, and with, and with a lot of money. And Jacob says, what's, what's going on here, you know? And the brothers say, we've got to send Benjamin down to get our brother back. And Jacob says, no way. And Reuben says, listen, you can kill my sons, but no way. And then Judah says, listen, send them with me. And then Jacob says, why did you tell them you have another brother altogether? And the other brothers say, well, it's not our fault. I mean, he asked us all these questions, so we answered the question. And then Judah says, listen, stop, he says. We don't, it doesn't matter whose fault it is, actually. Did he ask the question? This is the reality. It's our fault. It's not our fault. It's just, this is all a digression. It's all one big deflection. You only have one question. How to deal with the situation the way it is now. And Judah comes forward with an idea, and Jacob accepts it. Now, nothing to me is a great story, actually. Anybody who's ever dealt with trying to negotiate two sides of anything, that's what you get into. You know what I mean? You have a problem. It's your fault. You should never have done this, you know, back and forth. It's going forever, actually. It, gets, it gets, takes you absolutely no place. The only question is, okay, right, it's my fault. Correct, 100%. Now we have the following problem. How do we deal with it? And that's exactly Ishmael. It's a terrible story that we got to this point in time, but here we are. And Ishmael actually has to be thrown out. And I'll explain why in a minute. I'll just add that actually Abraham, number one, doesn't want to throw him out. Number two, God says to Abraham straight out, don't worry about him. I will make him a great nation. So, and number three, when he does send them out, he gives them enough provision to get where they have to go. The fact that, that, that they, they don't get lost in the desert and almost die is not his fault. That's blamed on Hagar, who gets lost. If anything, the condemnation in the story, there's a person who's condemned in the story, it's obviously Hagar, who gets lost, doesn't believe in the promise, and then, and then who abandons her child. Now, we're still sympathetic to her in a certain way. She also was unperceptive in the story. God has to open her eyes so that she sees. But the idea that Abraham is to be blamed for following God's commands, I would say, is in the realm of what we call Narishkeit, which is complete nonsense. Anybody who has the slightest ability to read anything, this, this is nonsense. It's just a reading in of our problems into the text. It's not in the text. And there's no problem with using the text as springboards for midrash and all kinds of stuff. But no good, it doesn't, it, the text does not validate any reading, anything resembling this whatsoever. Now, here's the point. Why must he be thrown out, actually? From God's perspective, not from Sarah's perspective. Maybe Sarah's just a jealous mother. Sarah has a lot of enmity towards Hagar in the first place. Probably even more enmity towards her beloved husband, Abraham, whom she blames in chapter 16 for all her problems. The injustice is your fault. There's a lot of truth to that. But the fact of the matter is, from God's perspective, why must Ishmael be exited? And the answer is very simple. Because as long as Ishmael is around, Abraham cannot see. As long as he's around, the son will always be Ishmael. And God doesn't want the son to be Ishmael. Ishmael is the wrong one for any number of reasons. And the moment that Ishmael is gone, when Abraham only has one son left, 
God appears to Abraham in the beginning of chapter 22 and tests Abraham by saying, take your son, Bincha, your only son, the one you love, Isaac. So suddenly Isaac is described in chapter 22 as your only son. What that means is not that Yishmael is not Abraham's son because the Torah said straight out in chapter 21, don't worry about Yishmael, I'm going to give him a big blessing, he is your descendant. Kizarachahu. So therefore, Yishmael is blessed on account of Abraham. What it means, your only son, means clearly only one thing, your only covenantal son. The blessing is to proceed through Isaac. Now here's the point of the binding of Isaac, in my view, but unfortunately time will not allow for a full exposition of this. If you ask the question, what then is the purpose of the binding of Isaac, I would say the purpose of the binding of Isaac is for Abraham to affirm that Isaac is his covenantal son and that Isaac being chosen is not by default. Because after all, what God could have said is, okay, now that you've banished Ishmael, you sent him away, I'm going to confer a blessing on your son, the one who remains with you. There's only one because the other guy sent away. So Isaac could have been the heir to Abraham's covenantal blessing by, by virtue of the fact that he's, he's the sole survivor, he's the sole remaining child, which is precisely what the Torah does not want. The Torah does not want Isaac to be chosen by virtue of the fact that he's the only one there. He wants Isaac to be chosen through a constructive and positive act of Abraham. And what is the positive act that Abraham must do in order to proclaim that Isaac is his son? Essentially what it is is he has to reclaim him. He has to claim him back. Now the method of claiming him back is an act of sacrificial substitution. Isaac, like Ishmael, is to be sent away, in fact, or to be killed. In fact, the two stories, the sending away of Isaac and the, the almost killing of Isaac and the banishing of Ishmael have precise parallels in the Torah, beginning with the first words, Vayashkem Avraham Baboker. In each case, he gets up early in the morning to either send away his son. In the first instance, in it, I would say not, un, not intentionally, but inadvertently, he almost kills him. In the second instance, he has the intention of carrying out God's command, the net effect of which will be to kill his son. The test, therefore, is addressing the core issue. It's not just a matter of doing a difficult thing, but the test addresses the core issue of the Abraham narrative, namely, who is Abraham's successor? And the Torah's answer is that Abraham's successor is Sarah's son Yitzchak, whom Abraham affirms as successor by virtue of an act of claiming him back. The claiming him back taking place through an act of substitution, of sacrifice, in which he brings Isaac back, but sacrifices in Isaac's place Isaac, or, or Isaac's proxy, which the Torah calls sacrifice, karban, ayo, whatever, but it's an act of claiming back. By the way, this in, if, if one accepts this interpretation, it then colors the reading of chapter 22, because then the critical piece of chapter 22 is not when Abraham is stopped by the angel from bringing the sacrifice, but the critical piece then becomes the very act of sacrifice itself. Now let me just make a point about the sacrifice itself, which I think is highly instructive uh, in terms, towards an understanding of the Abraham story. And that is, that if we think about the Abraham story from a larger perspective, and we ask ourselves, what are, what are the basic themes of the Abraham narrative in its totality? It strikes me that there are two themes that run through the Abraham story from beginning to end. 
First theme, as I mentioned, was who shall succeed? The search for successor. Lot, Eliezer of Damascus, Ishmael, and, uh, and Isaac. Um, there are even allusions in the, in the binding of Isaac's story that I can't get into, to, to, for example, Lot. I'll give you one, one example of it. And that is, when Abraham walks together with Isaac on the way to the sacrifice, the Torah twice has the same expression, they walk together. And that is clearly a reference back to the story of Lot, in which the Torah says twice, they could not dwell together. Whereas the Torah says, Lot and Abraham can't be together. Actually, they separate. In this case, the Torah always hints at the, the ending, which is, from a covenantal standpoint, they do walk together. So the fact of the matter is that in this search for successor, which culminates in the binding of Isaac through the act of claiming back, we have reached the successful conclusion of the search for successor. That's theme number one in the whole Abraham story, great father. Then there's another theme that runs through the Abraham story from top to bottom, which is hinted at by the very first things that God says to Abraham. Get up and go. Walk. Here we have the second motif of the entire Abraham story, and that is the search for the sacred place. And Abraham, when he first sets out to go into the land, which is chapter 12, the first place he hits, of course, is Shechem. Then from Shechem to Beit El. But then from Beit El, in the first few verses, where is, what's the next step on his itinerary? We have a change of plans on the itinerary here. Egypt. It's actually a stunning development. The man who was told in verse, chapter 12, verse 1, Go to the land that I will show you. And God shows him in verse number 6. We find this very man in Mitzrayim, which is not just a detour, but Mitzrayim is actually diametrically opposed to the land of Canaan in the Abraham, and in the whole Bible, actually. Mitzrayim is the place. Canaan is the place where you can actually connect to God, drive out those who can't adhere to God's way. Mitzrayim, who is actually Canaan's brother in Genesis and the genealogies, is the opposite where the bad guys actually subjugate you. So he's not just going to a different place, he's going to precisely the wrong place. It means very simply, that though God spoke to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 1, Lechucha, to go, doesn't actually understand where he's supposed to go to. If he understood, he would never go to Mitzrayim, obviously. Then he comes back, and when he comes back to Beit what does God say to Abraham in chapter 13? Baaretz, both separates, keep up where does he go next? Goes to Hebron. Goes to Hebron. Then he keeps on traveling, and just before the binding of Isaac, goes to a different place. A place called Beersheba. Comes to Beersheba in chapter 21, at the end of chapter 21, makes a covenant with the king of the Philistines, with Abimelech. He plants a tree. It's the end of the first day's reading of Rosh Hashanah. He plants a tree in Beersheba. And he calls there to the, to, to, the, to the eternal God. And Abraham dwelt in the land of the Philistines for many years. What does that mean? He has a place. He plants a tree. It means he plans to stay there for a long time. He lives there for many years. He has a covenant. He believes he has found God's place.
That's the end of chapter 21. So we begin the Torah reading on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Avram, right? What did God say? What is God say? Go to the place. What place? The place that I will tell you. The place that I will tell you. In chapter 12, by the way, where was Abraham directed to go? To the place that I will show you. It's parallel but different. Which is also very, from a methodological standpoint, very important. Because the, the good question is, why in chapter 12 does God say to Abraham, go to the place that I will show you? But in chapter 22, God says to Abraham, go to the place that I will tell you. What is the difference between the place that I will tell you and the place that I will show you? I'll get to that in a second. But the point is, though Abraham thinks he may have found the place, he hasn't found the place. The place is not Beersheba. Rather, Beersheba is the place from which you leave to go elsewhere. But the place, which becomes the place of Moriah, Haram Moriah, right? Or in Abraham's words, the place that God will show. Hashem Yireh, that's what he calls the place. And Abraham called the place of the altar Hashem Yireh, which is now known as the place in which God appears. That's the place. It's not the place that you choose. It's the place that God chooses. So when Abraham brings that sacrifice and names the place of the sacrifice, what is Abraham accomplishing? The sacrifice accomplishes two things simultaneously. First of all, he means that he, he has, through the act of reclamation, claiming back, affirms in God's words you have not withheld your son your only son from me and secondly something else he has not found the place okay now before I get to the point I want to make about Rosh Hashanah and the significance of this reading for Rosh Hashanah the binding of Isaac I mean one could make the argument just parenthetically that it maybe it's not even significant for Rosh Hashanah. Maybe the reason we read the binding of Isaac on the second day of Rosh Hashanah is because since the Torah says, on, since the, the Gemara says that the actual reading for Rosh Hashanah, which is one day, is Vashem Pokadet Sarah, we simply continue the story on the second day. The second day reading of Rosh Hashanah is the next chapter. So one could make the argument, which I think is not a good one, but one could say, well, continue reading. But essentially, the, the real reading is the first day. But I don't think that's necessarily true. We've seen, we saw, for example, that the binding of Isaac is, is the central text, as it were, or centrally significant in terms of the davening of Rosh Hashanah, in terms of the liturgy. <laughs> Therefore, I think we should try to figure out the relevance of Rosh Hashanah to the binding of Isaac. Let me make one little point that I noticed about a year ago about the story. Actually, I, many, I will say over the last year, uh, many things have happened. One of the good things is that I have seen many, many new things in Genesis through the eyes of Shmuel. I spent a lot of time thinking about Shmuel, and I came to a great epiphany about a year ago, which is one of the best things that ever happened to me. I suddenly realized, you may disagree with this, but, it's, but I'm right. <laughs> I, suddenly, I suddenly realized through the study of Samuel, Shmuel, which is great, really, that I don't actually understand Genesis. I don't know. Actually, I have, to, I have to go back and learn it now. I, I, the many th pieces of Genesis I don't actually understand. I deluded myself for many years thinking I could understand any of it. I've come to recognize now, it's one of the great moments in my life, actually, that I have to go back and study Breshit. I don't actually get There's many, many things I don't understand. 
uh, beginning to see certain things in the context, through the prism of Shmuel, actually, of all things. It happens sometimes. So, to reach a point where you know you don't know something, that's it's great, actually, you know, and, and also the opportunity to study it again. I'll tell you one small thing I notice. I begin to see things. God says one thing to Abraham at the binding of Isaac. God said, the, the angel calls down from heaven. When Abraham says, Abraham, stay your hand, right? Do, don't do anything. Don't do anything, right? Don't, don't, don't harm the child. For now I know that you are God-fearing. That's what the angel says. Don't do it. Reason. Because now I know that what? That you are a God-fearing person. In, in, in how do I realize that? What I noticed about that, the one reason given, is that all three of those expressions actually appear a little earlier in the Torah. They appear precisely in the story where God speaks to King Abimelech. Abimelech turns, you better return that woman, she's married to this guy, I'm going to kill you. What is this, says, says Abimelech, I'm so righteous, what do you mean? He said, sister, brother, sister, and what kind of God are you anyway? Would you kill a tzaddik like myself? My hands are so pure, my heart is pure. What's God's answer? Gamanochi yodati. I also know, says God. Right? I know. Right? I know that what a righteous man you are. Right? Let's see. I know that your hands are pure, right? But I have spared you from sinning against me. Right? Then he turns to Abraham. What did you do? Why, why did you do this? What does Abraham answer? Let's see. Chapter 20. What does Abraham say? Why did, what did you see to do this? Why, why did you do this thing? There were no God-fearing people here, and they would kill me. See, actually, it's striking. God says to Abimelech, what is this? I know, says God. I know what kind of person you are. Number one. Number two, I'm going to spare you for this reason. That's why I'm, I'm talking to spare you. Abraham, what is this? Why did you do this? Because you don't fear God. And now you read what God says to Abraham in chapter 22. Right? Don't hurt the child. Why not? For now I know, right? Right? That you are God-fearing. How so? For chasachta, because you didn't withhold your son from me. Clearly, the, the three terms all come straight out of the Abimelech story, which is very striking. It means that essentially what the Akedah is about, in part... What the Torah is discriminating on one hand, Abraham, from Abimelech. Because in chapter 20, they're basically the same. What, what is God? Abimelech returned the woman. What, 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 is, what kind of God are you? I'm a tzaddik. Number two, it's her fault. Number three, it's his fault, right? That's Abraham. Why did you say sister? Number one, I was afraid. Number two, she is my sister. Number three, we always do this. Right? It's exactly the same language. The same excuse making in each case. Very curious, by the way, I can demonstrate it even better. I can't do that, but it's the same, which is why he stays there. Oh, you stay. I gave your brother some money to cover up. You, you, you stay with me. You're just my kind of people, you know? That's the point. Abraham has to go through an act of separation later. But at the Akeda, actually, you have this act of separation. Now, I wanted just to conclude with the following thought. Uh, I'll take a few minutes. And that is the connection, the place of the binding of Isaac, not so much as far as the Torah reading is concerned, but the place of the binding of Isaac in, in conjunction with the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. So I wanted to make the following, I have the following observation about the place of the Akedah in the Davni. Now, where does the Akedah appear? Let me just read up a master in front of 
the Akedah appears at the end of the section we call in our Shemona Esrei Zichronot, Remembrances. The day of Rosh Hashanah is called Yom HaZikaron. Day of Remembrance. So, so, if we think about that section of the, of the service, the remembrances, first of all, we just, since you don't have it in front of you, I'll refresh our memory about this m- middle section of the Musaf service. Begins with the words, Atazokher Maseolam. God remembers the actions of, of all time. God is judging all creations from the beginning. And it describes God as known. So all the hidden things are revealed to God. Nothing is hidden. You remember all the deeds, even the created beings, right? Then it describes Sofel Mabit at Sofko Adorot, God knows it appears into the future till the end of time. The language, but it's very beautiful. It's, it's old, very, very old. You have a feel for the language. The Talmud already makes reference to it, it's 2,000 years old. Then it describes. You, you have revealed this thought from the beginning of time. You revealed it from the very beginning and the line in the beginning of the service. This day is a remembrance of the first day. Right? A statute unto Israel and an ordinance for Jacob. What does that mean, actually? We are saying this every year. What does that mean? What does that refer to? I will say straight out that 99% of the people who say it have no clue what they're saying. I'm, 99% is being generous. By 99.99% don't understand. But I will tell you the secret of what it means, and it's very important. It's based on a midrash. See, the day of Rosh Hashanah actually is identified with so-called creation. Hayom harat olam, we are saying. The creation of the world. Rosh Hashanah in the Talmud, and certainly in the liturgy, is the day in which the world is created. But more, more precisely, in Midrashic thinking, it's not actually the day the world is created. The world is not born on Rosh Hashanah. Because Rosh Hashanah is not the first day of creation. Rosh Hashanah in Midrashic thinking is the sixth day of creation. The 25th day of Elul was the day the world's created. The birthday is 25 Elul. Rosh Hashanah is the sixth day of creation. Number one. Number two, in many Midrashim, not only is it the day that the human being is created, but Midrashically, on the day the human is created, the human sins. The sin of Adam is on that day. And not only is it the day that Adam sins, together with his wife, it's also the day that Adam is judged. Rosh Hashanah, midrashically, is not just the day that the human being is created, but the day of creation is the day of judgment. That's precisely the point of this particular line in the beginning of the remembrance section. This day, which day? The day of remembrance. What does memory mean on Rosh Hashanah? It, will, it means more than one, but it starts with one thing judgment. 
the judgment is described right afterwards as both nations and individuals. Right? When created beings are judged. Right? Who is not judged on this day? Right? The memory of all beings is before you. The machinations and the impulses of every human being. That's an awesome davening, really, you know? And it's probably, you know, the problem with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Actually, the problem with davening in general. Too many words. Too many words. We say too many things. If we said one hundredth of what we say, we might actually have a real davening. Instead of the mumbling that we do all the time. But that's a different problem, you know? Can't solve. But having said the too many words, what's important to understand is there are words and there are words. To be able to understand what is really significant, you know what I mean? This is what Rosh Hashanah is about. This is it. Sichronot. I mean, the day of judgment. Yes, God is king, but kings are judging. And that's the point. So this judge knows everything. Knows the past, knows the future. Knows us very well. After all, God has created us. Knows it perfectly well. The rationalizations, the impulses, machinations, the deeds, the thoughts, the works. From which you read this, you say to yourself, it's a pretty hopeless situation, because how can we possibly escape the judgment? Which, of course, is the point of the Zichrona, if I get to it. But the point is this. The person who we summon up on Rosh Hashanah to represent judgment is one person. Adam. Adam. The day, at this is the point we're making, we enter into judgment. We are celebrating the creation of the human being by repeating, as it were, by reliving or re-experiencing the first day. We take it upon ourselves to do it. We hope Israel, who that Israel on this day is recalling that first day of judgment, and we are willingly, as it were, entering into judgment. That's the power of that statement. Adam. It starts with Adam. And then describes the judging. What is service to end at this point? It will be a very sad day for all of us. Pretty hopeless situation. However, the Zichronot does not end there. And there actually are two other major themes to the Zichronot and sub-themes as well. And then the next verse. The next part of the service. How does it begin? Who knows? You don't know. Ashri The word awesome is overused, you know what I mean? It is actually awesome. This is because it's so beautiful, really. It's all lost. Ten words among the ten thousand, you know what I mean? No one no one understood. It's terrible really, you know, it's what's lost. Ashri right? Here we come to a very important word. Actually, the most important word in the entire Hebrew language, which is what? Drisha. Right? That's what it is. It says, happy is the one who does not forget you. It's all about memory. God remembers us. But the next line is, happy is the person who doesn't forget. Forget God. Ki There's a wonderful play on Darshecha. For those Darshecha, those who seek you out, will not stumble. For the deeds of all beings come before you. It's an excellent play on the word Widrosh. Actually, the name Jerisha, my father of blessed memory, was the one who acted. Hebrew wasn't that good, but he, picked, he actually chose the name Jerisha. And for two reasons. 
Yes, I said it has a feminine sound to it, which was good. But also, Jerisha has two meanings. In the Torah, the court examines carefully. Jerisha means careful study. But it has another meaning, Lidrosh, which is to yearn for something, to seek something. It really combines the two aspects of what it means to study Torah. One is to, to, to learn, to figure things out, to analyze. There's another whole side to the study of Torah in our tradition, which is the study of Torah as a, as a, as a core religious experience. That's the three show. We are seeking out God. It would be good if all of our Torah, the analysis, were actually covered by the other point. At the end of the day, it's easy to forget this with all the cleverness we have. At the end of the day, it's actually about seeking God. That's what it's really about. This gets, often gets lost in the shuffle. In any event, that's the point. What we're saying is, yes, everybody is judged. It's hopeless. God knows everything. However, God has a soft spot, as it were, for those who don't forget God. Those who don't forget God, God does not forget. And now someone steps up on the stage, and we never hear from usually, typically don't hear from in our service, who represents this idea. That for those who seek God, God is a special place. Who is it? Noah. Noah is the one. And you remembered Noah. When you brought the floods to destroy all the world. But you saved Noah and Noah's family. We quote the verses. So it starts with Adam. Adam represents judgment. Then we come to the next character. Adam is hinted at, not mentioned by name. Right? Although it is hinted at, son of Adam. Right? Tenth generation. Noah represents something else. As even though no one is pure before God, as, as, as Eov said himself, right? Or they said to Eov, I don't recall, in chapter 3. Right? Right? Even his angels he charges with folly, right? So, nonetheless, but there's some people who escape the judgment. Those who don't forget. That's the second theme. The problem with that for us is very simple. That Noah is described in the Torah as being a tzaddik, a tamim, and special in his generation. So that's great for Noah. But how many Noahs are there? What about for the rest of us? All the other shlepers? What about, how, do we, how do we escape the judgment? What's going to be, you know? So now we move to a third and dominant theme of Zichron Note. The theme is that of covenant. Covenant. And the person actually who represents covenant is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the one who was singled out at the end of the blessing is Abraham. Because in the, in, the, every of these three sections has a state body of, a body of information and a request. At the end of the request, we are asking God to remember the binding of Isaac and specifically to remember Abraham. Remember, Abraham, our father, was able to uh, subdue his feelings to do your will. So, too, you should subject, subdue your own feelings, your own essential essence, which is that of truth, and use your mercies. And, and remember the bonding of Isaac for us today. Blessed are you, O God, who remembers the covenant. One might say that the frame of 
I remember seeing this uh, myself many years ago. I don't know if anybody else has ever seen this. I have no idea. I've never seen it anyplace else. I suddenly realized that the frame of the central section of Rosh Hashanah is Adam and then Noah and then Abraham. I was very excited about this. It's actually what we say in Pirkei Avot. There were ten generations from Adam to Noah, ten generations from Noah to Abraham. And I noticed that the frame of it is Adam, Noah, and Abraham. Now, you may ask me the question, what is so exciting about that? So I'll tell you. I'll tell you what it is. It's a story I've told many times. About 25 years ago, a very good friend of mine sent me a gift. I mentioned this story at least two or three times. In those days, we had what's called records. And people, the young people don't know about records. But we had, they had records in those days. And he sent me, in those days, I was very into classical music. He sent me a recording, excellent one, of the 24th piano concerto of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Mozart. Mozart's 24th piano concerto. It's a great, great piece of music, actually. You familiar with that piece of music? You should listen to it. It's one of the greats. Anyway, so before I... So I'm about to play it. You know, there's a, a jack comes in a jacket, so you read the back of it. I said the following thing. I remember this so clearly at one of these moments in your life. I said, you know, Mozart is coming after Bach, the whole Baroque tradition. And, but there are all kinds of innovations. Mozart is a great innovator. He works with very set, you know, forms, but there's enormous innovation. So I, so I, I put, the, put on the record, I play the record. You understand, I to, in those days, I listened to a good amount of classical music. And when I was brought up, I, in the morning, I woke up at WQXR, my parents would be playing the music. That's why I woke up with this stuff. Point is, to me, Mozart was the guy who, 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 who came before Beethoven, actually. That's what I thought Mozart. He's the guy before Beethoven. I always listen to Mozart thinking of Beethoven. Suddenly, you put this record on, and suddenly, it was different. Suddenly, I heard Bach. You hear Bach, and here's the point. This was, to me, a great moment, actually, because, you know, we are all learning the Torah. Avram. In fact, in some schools, when they start teaching the little children, they don't start with chapter 1, verse 1. They start with chapter 12. And God said to Abraham, Lechucha. Humongous mistake, but that's beside the point. I'll tell you why. It's, and, but it makes sense from a certain Abraham, the, the first Jew, right? The great father. Which is true. He is. It's just the beginning of the patriarchal story Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah, Rebecca. But there's another truth to Abraham, which is very important. So, what it says in Pirkei Avot, he's not the beginning of something, he's the end. Ten generations from Adam to Noah, and ten generations from Noah to Abraham. And that statement carries enormous significance because what they're saying is there's another way to read Abraham, not as the beginning of something, but as the conclusion. Because the story of creation is not finished in chapter 1 of Genesis nor in chapter 4 of Genesis because there's the story of the creation and there's the story of the recreation of the world, which is Noah, the recreated world. The Talmud calls the people of the world B'nai Noah. Noah is the, real, the world in which we really live is the world after Noah. But the creation does not stop with Noah either. So does the recreation for a very simple reason. And I'll explain it. Because the purpose of creation in the Torah, not so much in chapter 1 of Genesis, but in the second creation story of chapter 2 and 3 and 4, the purpose of it was for God to create a sacred space. The Torah calls it the Garden of Eden, a place in which the human being can stand before God, can work, there, work it and guard it, and God is walking in the garden, and what happens in the Torah is that after the Adam and Eve eat of this forbidden tree, 
then we are all banished from Eden. And outside of Eden, there's a cherub with a flaming sword, and we can never get back. Eden is the place to which you can never return. It's the, it's the sacred space which is off limits. And what the Torah sets up in the book of Genesis is an alternate sacred space. It calls it the land, of, the land of Canaan. There is a sacred space which you can live in if you live a certain way. If you fail to live this way, you will be kicked out. The Canaanites will be thrown out for their sin is complete. The Torah in Leviticus says the Jews can also be thrown out. The land will vomit you out, will spit you out because you have to adhere to a certain level of conduct. But it's not impossible to do so. It's possible. And the whole story of the Torah is preparation, is the study in the desert to be able to live in the land. That's what the Torah sees it. Who is the person who secures the sacred space? And the answer is... I don't know, maybe it's Pavarotti or Vashon. I don't know. But anyway. But the point is that... Uh, what is that coming from, actually? What? Oh. All right. So it's... Uh, the answer is the one who secures the sacred space in Genesis is, of course, Abraham. And he does so in two different ways. He secures it in two different ways. This is a very important point. First, he secures the land generally. I mean, it's all symbolic. First, he secures the land in its totality. And then he secures within the land the holiest place, the holy of holies. He secures the land in its totality in, uh, in Genesis chapter 14. That's the story in which Abraham goes to war to save his nephew Lot. He defeats in that chapter four kings who have captured Lot. The four kings themselves have defeated all the powerful nations of the land of Canaan. In fact, the list of kings in chapter 14 that the four kings defeat are precisely parallel to the list of powerful nations in the land of Canaan that appears in the first chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. The Amalekites, the Giants, the Rephaim, the Amim, the Zamzumim, the So by proxy, as it were, that's the point, by proxy he secures the sacred space. And, lest you miss this point, almost everyone does, but the Torah doesn't want you to miss the point. And therefore the Torah has something happen at the end of that chapter, chapter 14, to underscore the great significance of Abraham defeating the four kings in chapter 14. And what it does is that after he defeats these four kings, he's on the way home, somebody comes to greet him. The person who comes to greet him is a mysterious fellow named Malkitzedek, the king, the king, and the, the, king and the, and the priest of Shalem. He says to Avram, give him a blessing. Baruch Avram el Elyon konesha mayim varetz. Blessed is Avram to the high God, the creator of heaven and earth. And blessed is the high God who handed your enemies over to you. The God that says Malkitzedek to Abraham, you Abraham are blessed because you have, you have fulfilled the will of the Most High, the creator of heaven and earth. But that he's saying... In, in capturing this land, symbolically, in capturing the land of Canaan, you are fulfilling the purpose of creation. The purpose of creation of heaven and earth was to secure a sacred space. You have secured the sacred space, which is the will of El Elyon, the creator of all. And therefore, Hashem began Sarecha Biyadecha. In the very next chapter starts, God says to Abraham, don't worry, Anochi Magenlach. 
This is a moment of supreme significance. Let me say just two minutes of something that this next point was worth coming this morning. Something you'll never hear any other place in the world, any place. And it's so simple, too. Here's the point. I mentioned in the beginning that the service for said Yom Kippur service, for example, that the biblical text that lies behind Yom Kippur is the story of the golden calf. Slichot are based on the story of the egg. It's the response to the golden calf. It's God giving Moses the attributes of mercy. I mentioned that the central text in our service of Rosh Hashanah doesn't appear that often, but it appears in a very central place. Is Abraham covenantal relationship with God, which, which actually saves us, otherwise we're finished. God doesn't judge us only as individuals where we are today within a covenantal context. The person who represents that is Abraham in the event we cite the binding of Isaac. I'll come back to this in two minutes. So we all understand this. In other words, that makes sense. The rabbis are composing prayers. They said the high holidays. And they want to pick a biblical text around which to, to base it. So what are they going to pick? Some picky little text? You know what I mean? They pick the big stuff. Someone says, tell me, what book of Genesis, what are the highlights of Genesis? Tell me the highlights. I, I, I think the binding of Isaac is up there, okay? It's either high, I would say it's either one or two. There's only one of the story that, that rivals it in power. It's Jacob wrestling with the angel. Outside of that, those are the two stories. And actually, they're actually connected to each other. That's a separate conversation. But the point is, the binding of Isaac is a story of enormous significance. And by the way, we, you know this for a very simple reason. Because other stories play off it. Other biblical stories play off it. Because look at the liturgy. So within the Bible, I would say, from an objective standpoint, and within Jewish tradition from a subjective standpoint, the binding of Isaac is very important. Same thing with the golden calf. golden calf is probably, once you get out of Genesis, the most important story of the Torah. Not probably. It's the most important story of the Torah because it actually defines Israel's connection to God forever. It's about real, connecting to God in a real way. Because the first connection at Sinai, that's not real. Because that's not us. This, this, this embodied voice coming down, all this other business. That's not us. Those tablets are not for us. Tablets that are for us are the second tablets, which Moses gets quietly. And the first tablet, after they're broken, that's also for us. The broken tablets, that makes sense. The golden calf redefines Israel. It's number one on the list. Maybe it's number two. You want to argue? Fine. It's a major story of the Torah, obviously, that we get. But here's what's very strange. What's very strange is, what about the daily prayer service? Namely, so-called Amida, the silent prayer. How does it begin? It talks with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? It ends with the blessing, Baruch Atah Hashem, Magain Avraham, shield of Abraham. And it says two, two, two other propositions about, what well, it says a few propositions about God, but two that it says clearly are, number one, El Elyon, the highest God, and Vakone Hakol. By the way, in the, in the Yerushalmi, it's Vakone Shemayim Varetz, the creator of all. Creator of all, most high God and shield of Abraham, come from one place, which is the end of Genesis chapter 14, which of course raises the question, I understand Rosh Hashanah, I understand Yom Kippur, based on the Ego, Akedas Yitzchak, but why in the world, when the rabbis are constructing the most important prayer, the first blessing of the Amidah, never changes. Why are they directing us to Genesis chapter 14? That's the question. Now, of course, since nobody realized they were directing us to Genesis 14 until five minutes ago, never had the problem. Now that you understand, it's obvious. They had, why? Malkit Tzedek, and the answer is very simple. Because that's the moment in time 
when Abraham is fulfilling God's purpose in, 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 in creation of the world. He's securing a sacred place. And I would say something else, by the way, in terms of prayer. And that is, the, the typical prayer is all about asking for things. We are asking God for so many things, wisdom and good health and sustenance and God should see our plight, social justice, all kinds of things. But before we get to all that, we start with a very simple proposition. We see ourselves differently in the first blessing of the Shemona Esri. We're saying is, we, God, we understand that our real purpose, or one of our dual purposes, is to fulfill God's will in this world. That, 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 that's what, that's what Malkit said. Blessed are you to the highest God, creator of heaven. Abraham, you have fulfilled God's purpose. And then he says, secondly, and also, blessed is the God who helps you. Those are two different things. That's how we start every, every prayer. Before we get to what we want, we say we see ourselves as commanded beings whose purpose is to bring God down to earth. One might say the kingship of heaven, that's, that's, which of course is a Rosh Hashanah theme in, specifically, but it's a theme in general as well. And I would say the following. That the binding of Isaac, you see, is part two. Part one is securing the land. And he, as soon as he secures the land, he gets a blessing from Malkitzedek. Part two is the binding of Isaac. Because the binding of Isaac is not just about securing the land in general, but it's the place that I will tell you. In fact, he secures it both by God telling him, but also by seeing through his own perception. And he names the place, the place that God shows. Hashem Yireh. Hashem Yamir Hayom. Behar Hashem Which is not just a fulfillment, as I mentioned earlier, of the, of the Akedah story. But, 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 but more broadly, is the fulfillment and the culmination of the entire creation narrative. After all, the creation narrative, God's purpose was to create a sacred space. So the Garden of Eden we can't get back to. But there is an alternate Eden, an alternate sacred space that we can get to. In fact, that's what the Torah says. Hashem Yireh, Hashem which in fact it works. But even to today, says the Torah, the place where God is seen. And what happens right after that? What comes in conjunction with that? Right? Then God reiterates the blessing right after Hashem Yireh. In other words, it's parallel to Malkitetic, as it were. Each time the sacred space is secured, there is the blessing. In the first instance, by God's priest. In the second instance, by God or God's angel, who is blessing Abraham at the end of chapter 22. So that's what got me very excited many years ago when I saw this. In other words, the theme of Rosh Hashanah is in fact creation. And the Zichronot is the central section. But the way it's set up, the format of Zichronot, Adam and Noah and Abraham, is itself about creation. The very structure itself leads us towards an understanding of Rosh Hashanah as a day of creation, which is the, the covenantal Abraham. Through the covenant, we are securing God's place in this world. God's place in this world being the place that Abraham discovers, as it were, by being guided, but also by being perceptive, is able to see the, is able to discover the uh, sacred place. So this is, I think, on much the idea of this, the structure of Zichronot, but also the themes of Zichronot, which I say are judgment, Adam, providence, Noah, and then covenant, Abraham. These are the themes, and this is the place, I think, of the binding of Isaac within the framework of the Rosh Hashanah service. I'll stop at this point.